Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. How are you today? Uh, normally, this would be a wrap-up Saturday, where I wrap up and give some thoughts on uh, what happened the previous week. But I am totally enthralled with, what, with what's going on in the book of Acts. And I decided I'm just, I couldn't wait till Monday to do uh, today's chapter. Things are getting really ramped up. Um, first of all, the Jewish religious leaders take an important first step, actually next step, I should say, in their persecution of the church. I mean, they'd flogged Peter and John, but they're, they are going to take, they're, they're going to ramp up. And they have to do something to control this movement that is taken off like wildfire. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people are turning to the way, confessing faith in Jesus as Messiah. Um, and these people are meeting in the temple, on the temple grounds. They are preaching. Uh, it's gone from just the apostles being the primary movers and shakers to now you have people who are not apostles that are doing wonders and miracles who are preaching. And that would be Stephen. So um, they have to do something. Um, they can't... They have to manufacture a response. They don't have an intellectual response that matters. Uh, it said in yesterday's reading, that, that they could not negate Stephen's arguments. Um, they're in Jerusalem, and the greatest minds, religious minds in the, in the Jewish world were there. Priests, Levites, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees. Uh, their greatest Paul was there, or Saul, as he was known at this time, was there. And it said that they could not uh, they couldn't cancel out Stephen's arguments. So uh, debate wasn't doing it for them. Um, all they had to do was produce the body of, of Jesus, and that would have shut this whole thing down. Of course, they couldn't do that. Jesus had been resurrected. Jesus had gone back to be with the Father in heaven. So there was no body that, that they could have produced that would shut this movement down. So they were reduced to manufacturing accusations and charges, uh, and they had Peter and John flogged, like I mentioned, but they weren't stopping this thing. And it's gone from the apostles, the original 12, actually 11, because Judas Iscariot had died, uh, and now we have deacon, what we would call deacons, uh, Stephen. He was actually performing wonders. He was actually performing miracles. And apparently... He was besting all of the best and brightest minds that the religious community had to offer. So they're going to have to do something because flogging Peter and John didn't do it. So that's where we are today. Now, first of all, one thing that I thought was really interesting, we're going to talk a little bit about this thing called the Sanhedrin. Let me go to that document. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. Just it's part of me being... Uh, the nerdy historical type that I am. But I've always been curious about the Sanhedrin. And I found this article. The Sanhedrin comes from the word Sanhedrin, which means sitting together, hence assembly. 
They were assemblies of either 23 or 71 elders, known as rabbis after the destruction of the Second Temple, who were appointed to sit as a tribunal in every city in the ancient land of Israel. There were two classes of these Jewish courts, which were called the Sanhedrin, the Great Sanhedrin and the Lesser Sanhedrin. A Lesser Sanhedrin of 23 judges was appointed to sit as a tribunal in each city. But there was only supposed to be one Great Sanhedrin of 71 judges, which, among other roles, acted as a Supreme Court, taking appeals from cases which were decided by lesser courts. In general usage, the Sanhedrin, without qualifier, normally refers to the Great Sanhedrin in the Greater Sanhedrin, excuse me, in the New Testament. So whenever the Sanhedrin is mentioned in the Gospels and everything, it's the Great Sanhedrin, which is presided over by the Nazi, who functioned as its head or representing president and was a member of the court. There was a chief of the court who was second and 69 general members. Now in the second temple period, the Great Sanhedrin met in the temple in Jerusalem. The second temple period, Jesus' time. Okay, Herod had built his second temple. The Great Sanhedrin met in the temple in Jerusalem in a building called the Hall of Hewn Stones. This is where the trials are held. The Great Sanhedrin convened every day except during festivals and the Shabbat. After the destruction of the Second Temple and the failure of a Bar Kokhba revolt, I hope I pronounce it right, the Great Sanhedrin moved to Galilee, which became part of the Roman province of Syria, Palestrina, Palestina. In this period, the Sanhedrin was sometimes referred to as a Galilean patriarchate, being the governing legal body of Galilean Jewry. In the late 200s, to avoid persecution, the name Sanhedrin was dropped and its decisions were issued under the name, which I can't pronounce, of the House of Learning. The last universally binding decision of the Great Sanhedrin appeared in 358 CE, or post-Jesus, when the Hebrew calendar was established. The Great Sanhedrin was finally disbanded in 425 CE after continued persecution by the Eastern Roman Empire. They've tried to uh, revive the Sanhedrin, but it's never taken. So the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 people. The high priest was the president of the Sanhedrin, I guess, if you will. All right, you can see here the picture of the meeting place, the, the Hall of Hewn Stones. Um, the, man, the person in black is the accused. And that's where Stephen would be standing. So they bring Stephen in. Uh, they couldn't they couldn't overcome his argument, so they bring him in the Sanhedrin and he's standing trial. And that's where we're at today. So let's read. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? They had charged him with blasphemy, basically. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He starts off by identifying with his audience. That's a good, that's a good rule of rhetoric. Place yourself with your audience. Make, find a, a commonality. And that's what he did here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So he's telling him, I'm a Jew, you're a Jew. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. 
He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with them and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. And as the time grew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Now, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner, and he had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. 
I'm going to stop right there real quick. Stephen's goal in this speech is to present to them similarities between Jesus and the prophets that came before. He made a very important statement here. He said he was, this is the same Moses they had rejected, but God sent Moses to be their ruler. In other words, he's hinting at the fact that they had rejected Jesus, that God sent anyway to be Messiah. I'm going to continue on. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet or raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Talking about Jesus. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors, again, he's identifying with them. Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. That was a time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and then gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Uh, you've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he'd seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. All right, Stephen is about to take a big swipe at them. These people at Sanhedrin, they were in the second temple. It was an, it must have been an incredible, incredible, uh, ornate thing, this temple. Um, it was huge. It, it was impressive. And here's what Moses said. Or here's what, here's what uh, Stephen said. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. You could just see him. I could just see Stephen. However, the Most High doesn't. He doesn't live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Where will my resting place be? Has not my hands, hand made all these things? I'm gonna stop right there. Stephen has a sudden shift of tone, and we're going to read that here in a second. One of my greatest tools or attributes when I study the Bible is my realization that from the beginning of time to now, human nature has never changed. Now, why is that important? It's important because 
humans are involved in this story. We got Stephen, we got the Sanhedrin. Human nature being what it is, my observations of human nature over the past 65 years of my life, almost 66 now, I can draw on that experience and use a little bit of a sanctified imagination, if you will, to imagine what's happening in this meeting. They've been unable to overcome his arguments out in the marketplace, out in the courtyards. They brought him to trial. The same kind of kangaroo court that Jesus was put through. Stephen's in a very dangerous place. And he is not a formally trained religious mind. He probably had some synagogue training when he was young. But his knowledge of scripture and the totality of their story, Israel's story, is amazing from someone so unlearned. And I use that word unlearned probably in the sense that they did. The majority of the Sanhedrin were full of very proud and arrogant people. And he's facing them. He has to know that he's in, like Daniel, he's in the lion's den here. And he has to know that this is a dangerous place. And yet he fearlessly stands in front of them and lectures them on the history of Israel. So now, having faced arrogant people in the past myself, I can imagine while he's talking the lack of respect they're giving him. They ask him a question. Are these charges true? They're expecting a yes or a no. He gives them a sermon. He gives them a summary of Israel's history. And he gives them veiled backhands, if you will, uh, alluding to how Moses, the prophet they revered the most, was rejected by his people. You know, it's, it's, he's, it gives a brilliant summation, a brilliant uh, survey of the life of Israel, the nation. And I can only imagine in the middle of the Sanhedrin, the disrespect he was getting, maybe the muttering, maybe the shaking of heads, the absolute indignation that someone not formally trained would dare to lecture them on the history of Israel. <laughs> Forget the fact that everything he said was true. They weren't sitting on the seats quietly in awe of what he was saying. They're angry. They couldn't beat him in the argument in the open marketplace. And then he comes into the Supreme Court of Israel and lectures them on Israel's place in God's history? Mm. So you can just see the indignation. And as I just imagine Stephen speaking this, looking around them, he's an he's this is a great oration. I could just imagine him looking around his audience and realizing how incredibly disrespectful they're being towards God towards him and he gets angry and he closes his message with this you stiff-necked people your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised 
You are just like our ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? The answer is no. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Hmm. I just picture Stephen giving this entire summation of the history of Israel. And while he's watching the disrespect and the, in, and the indignation of those he's talking to, in my mind, I hear Stephen going, well, in for a dime, in for a dollar. I'm just going to throw it down. Evidently, subtlety is lost on these people. I'm going to say it direct. You stiff-necked people. You're like our ancestors. You resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Hmm. And now you betrayed and murdered him. Stephen's indictment is that they murdered the prophets who announced the coming of the Messiah. And the present Jewish leadership murdered the Messiah. Stephen's final shot is to identify his audience as the ones who received the law but did not keep it. He separates himself from his audience at this point. In the beginning, he said, our, right? Let's go back up here. His opening statement. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And he's saying brothers and fathers. He's identifying himself as a Jew with them, drawing them in. And then he just shares this convivial little story, taking them through a survey of the Old Testament, and they're not giving him any respect. And he finally closes with this, you stiff-necked people segment. I wonder what their reaction is going to be. So glad you asked. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. I mean, they're, they're just, they're losing it. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, he said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, they understood him when he said Son of Man. They understood he was talking about Jesus. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Just think about the bedlam. This ruling council, the Supreme Court, the judges of all things legal in Israel. They all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, that was pretty telling right there because... Under Roman rule, they could not exact the death penalty. They couldn't kill anybody. That was Rome's decision. But they were in bed with Rome. They were in cahoots with Rome. And Rome would turn an eye, uh, turn a blind eye to this. They'd let them deal with This is a religious matter. They let them deal with it. Um, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We would come to know him as Paul. 
Laying them at the feet of Saul suggests some sort of authority in his part. He was too young at this point, probably, to be a member of the Sanhedrin. You had to be 40 years of age to be in the Sanhedrin. Uh, Paul died in A.D. 65. He was probably around maybe 75. So he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin at this point. I'm not sure. But he had to be 40 years of age. While they were stoning him, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said on the cross, where Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, like Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And when he said this, he fell asleep. What a powerful, powerful sequence of events this is. I am just absolutely astonished. Uh, when I read this story, I just get chill bumps. And I take some lessons from how Stephen presented his arguments when he was called in by the Sanhedrin to answer for his crime of beating their guys in arguments he basically recites their history to them they couldn't deny that they couldn't argue with that he didn't say anything wrong that was a brilliant survey of Old Testament up to the time of Jesus and then he identifies them not with the prophets of old, but he identifies them and compares them to those who persecuted the prophets and tells them straight out that they killed Messiah. And then they kill Stephen. There's so much to take from this. Uh, but I'm going to leave it here because I'm going to think on it some more. I'm going to let this soak in a little. Stephen was an incredibly powerful man in the Lord. He wasn't afraid when he faced his persecutors. May I have the courage of Stephen should that time ever come upon me. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. I'm out of here. Bye-bye.